Section 60 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of casual labour in general, and that of the rubbish carters in particular. Part 3. I now come to consider the circumstances causing an undue increase of the labourers in a country. Thus far we have proceeded on the assumption that both the quantity of work to be done and the number of hands to do it remained stationary, and we have seen that by the mere alteration of the time, rate and mode of working, a vast amount of surplus and consequently casual labour may be induced in a community. We have now to ascertain how, still assuming the quantity of work to remain unaltered, the same effect may be brought about by an undue increase of the number of labourers. There are many means by which the number of labourers may be increased besides that of a positive increase of the people. These are, one, by the undue increase of apprentices, two, by drafting into the ranks of labour those who should be otherwise engaged, as women and children, three, by the importation of labourers from abroad, four, by the migration of country labourers to towns, and so overcrowding the market in the cities, five, by the depression of other trades, six, by the undue increase of the people themselves. Each and every of the first-mentioned causes are as effective a circumstance for the promotion of surplus labour as even the positive extension of the population of the country. Let me begin with the undue increase of a trade by means of apprentices. This is perhaps one of the chief aids to the cheap system, for it is principally by apprentice labour that the better masters, as well as workmen, are undersold, and the skilled labourer consequently depressed to the level of the unskilled. But the great evil is that the cheapening of goods by this means causes an undue increase in the trade. The apprentices grow up and become labourers, and so the trade is glutted with workmen, and casual labour is the consequence. This apprentice system is the great bane of the printer's trade. Country printers take an undue number of boys to help them cheap. These lads grow up, and then, finding wages in the provinces depressed through this system of apprentice labour, they flock to the towns, and so tend to glut the labour market, and consequently to increase the number of casual hands. One cause of the increased surplus and casual labour in such trades as dressing case, work box, writing desk making, and other things in the fancy cabinet trade, among the worst trades, even in Spitalfields and Bethnal Green, shoe making, and especially of women and children's shoes, is the taking of many apprentices by small masters supplying the great warehouses. As journey work is all but unknown in the slop fancy cabinet trade, an apprentice, when he has served his time, must start on his own account in the same wretched way of business, or become a casual labourer in some unskilled avocation, and this is one way in which the hands surely, although gradually, increase beyond the demand. It is the same with the general slop cabinet maker's trade in the same parts. The small masters supply the slaughterhouses, the linen drapers and so on, who sell cheap furniture. They work in the quickest and most scamping manner, and do more work, 
which is nearly all done on the chance of sale, as they must confine themselves to one branch. The slop chair-makers cannot make tables, nor the slop table-makers chairs, nor the chiffonnier and drawer-makers bedsteads, for they have not been taught. Even if they knew the method and could accomplish other work, the want of practices would compel them to do it slowly, and the slop mechanic can never afford to work slowly. Such classes of little masters, then, to meet the demand for low-priced furniture, rear their sons to the business, and frequently take apprentices to whom they pay small amounts. The hands so trained, as in the former instances, are not skilled enough to work for the honourable trade, so that they can only adopt the course pursued by their parents or masters before them. Hence a rapid, although again gradual, increase of surplus hands, or hence a resort to some unskilled labour to be wrought casually. This happens too, but in a smaller degree, in trades which are not slop, from the same cause. Concerning the apprentice system in the boot and shoe trade, when making my inquiries into the condition of the London workman, I received the following statements. My employer had seven apprentices when I was with him. Of these, two were parish apprentices, I was one, and the other five from the refuse for the destitute at Hoxton. With each refuse boy he got five pounds and three suits of clothes and a kit, note tools, end note. With the parish boys of Covent Garden and St. Andrew's Holborn, he got five pounds and two suits of clothes, reckoning what the boy wore as one. My employer was a journeyman, and by having all as boys, he was able to get up work very cheap, though he received good wages for it. We boys got no allowance in money, only board, lodging and clothing. The board was middling, the lodging was too, and there was nothing to complain about in the clothing. He was severe in the way of flogging. I ran away six times myself, but was forced to go back again, as I had no money and no friend in the world. When I first ran away, I complained to Mr. Blank, the magistrate, and he was going to give me six weeks. He said it would do me good, but Mr. Blank interfered, and I was let go. I don't know what he was going to give me six weeks for, unless it was for having a black eye that my master had given me with the stirrup. Of the seven, only one served his time out. He let me off two years before my time was up, as we couldn't agree. The mischief of taking so many apprentices is this. The master gets money with them from the parish, and can feed them much as he likes as to quality and quantity, and if they run away soon, the master's none the worse, for he's got the money. And so boys are sent out to turn vagrants when they run away, as such boys have no friends. Of us seven boys, at the wages our employer got, one could earn nineteen shillings, another fifteen shillings, another twelve shillings, another ten shillings, and the rest not less than eight shillings each, for all worked sixteen hours a day. That's four pounds eight shillings a week for the seven, or two hundred and twenty-five pounds ten shillings a year. You must recollect, I reckon this on nearly the best wages in the women's trade. My employer you may call a sweater, and he made money fast, though he drank a good deal. We seldom saw him when he was drunk, but he did pitch into us when he was getting sober. Look how easily such a man with apprentices can undersell others when he wants to work as cheap as possible for the great slop warehouses. 
They serve haberdashers so cheap that often enough it's starvation wages for the same shops. Akin to the system of using a large number of apprentices is that of employing boys and girls to displace the work of men at the less laborious parts of the trade. It is probable, said a working shoemaker to me, that independent of apprentices, 200 additional hands are added to our already overburdened trade yearly. Sewing boys soon learn the use of the knife. Plenty of poor men will offer to finish them for a pound and a month's work, and men for a few shillings and a few weeks' work will teach other boys to sew. There are many of the wives of chambermasters teach girls entirely to make children's work for a pound and a few months' work and there are many in Bethnal Green who have learnt the business in this way. These teach some other members of their families, and then actually set up in business in opposition to those who taught them, and in cutting offer their work for sale at a much lower rate of profit, and shopkeepers in town and country, having circulars sent to solicit custom, will have their goods from a warehouse that will serve them cheapest. Then the warehousemen will have them cheap from the manufacturer, and he in his turn cuts down the wages of the workpeople, who fear to refuse offers at the warehouse price, knowing the low rate at which chambermasters will serve the warehouse. As in all trades where lowness of wages is the rule, the boy system of labour prevails among the cheap cabinet workers. It prevails, however, among the garret masters, by very many of them having one, two, three or four youths to help them and so the number of boys thus employed through the whole trade is considerable. This refers principally to the general cabinet trade. In the fancy trade, the number is greater, as the boys' labour is more readily available. But in this trade, the greatest number of apprentices is employed by such warehousemen as are manufacturers, as some at the East End are, or rather by the men that they constantly keep at work. Of these men, one has now eight and another fourteen boys in his service, some apprenticed, some merely engaged, and dischargeable at pleasure. A sharp boy in six or eight months becomes handy, but four out of five of the workmen thus brought up can do nothing well but their own particular branch, and that only well as far as celerity in production is considered. It is these boys who are put to make or as a master of the better class distinguished to me, not to make, but to put together, ladies' workboxes at fivepence apiece, the boy receiving tuppence halfpenny a box. Such boxes, said another workman, are nailed together. There's no dovetailing, nothing of what I call work, or workmanship, as you say, about them, but the deals nailed together, and the veneers dabbed on, and if the deal's covered, why, the thing passes. The worst of it is that people don't understand either good work or good wood. Polish them up and they look well. Besides, and that's another bad thing, for it encourages bad work, there's no stress on a lady's work-box as on a chair or a sofa, and so bad work lasts far too long, though not half so long as good, in solids especially, if not in veneers. To such a pitch is this demand for children's labour carried, that there is a market in Bethnal Green where boys and girls stand twice a week to be hired as binders and sewers. Hence it will be easily understood 
that it is impossible for the skilled and grown artisan to compete with the labour of mere children, who are thus literally brought into the market to undersell him. Concerning this market for boys and girls in Bethnal Green, I received, during my inquiries into the boot and shoe trade, the following statements from shopkeepers on the spot. Mr. H. has lived there sixteen years. The market days are Monday and Tuesday mornings from seven to nine. The ages of persons who assemble there vary from ten to twenty, and they are often of the worst character, and a decided nuisance to the inhabitants. A great many of both sexes congregate together, and most market days there are three females to one male. They consist of sewing boys, shoe-binders, winders for weavers, and girls for all kinds of slop needlework, girls for domestic work, nursing children, and so on. No one can testify for a fact that they, the females, are prostitutes, but by their general conduct they are fit for anything. The market some years since was held at the top of Abbey Street, but on account of the nuisance it was removed to the other end of Abbey Street. When the schools were built, the nuisance became so intolerable that it was removed to a railway arch in White Street, Bethnal Green. There are two policemen on market mornings to keep order, but my informant says they require four to maintain anything like subjection. But family work, or the conjoint labour of a workman's wife and children, is an equally extensive cause of surplus and casual labour. A small master, working perhaps upon goods to be supplied at the lowest rates to wholesale warehousemen, will often contribute to this result by the way in which he brings up his children. It is less expensive to him to teach them his own business, and he may even reap a profit from their labour, than to have them brought up to some other calling. I met with an instance of this in an inquiry among the toy-makers. A maker of common toys brought up five children to his own trade, for boys and girls can be made useful in such labour at an early age. His business fell off rapidly, which he attributed to the great and numerous packages of cheap toys imported from Germany, Holland and France, after the lowering of the duty by Sir Robert Peel's tariff. The chief profit to the toy-maker was derived from the labour, as the material was of trifling cost. He found, on the change in his trade, that he could not employ all his family. His fellow tradesmen, he said, were in the same predicament, and thus surplus hands were created, so leading to, to casualty in labour. The system which has, I believe, the worst effect on the women's trade in the boot and shoe business throughout England is, I said, in the morning chronicle, chambermastering. There are between 300 and 400 chambermasters. Commonly, the man has a wife and three or four children, ten years old or upwards. The wife cuts out the work for the binders, the husband does the knife work, the children sew with uncommon rapidity. The husband, when the work is finished at night, goes out with it, though wet and cold and perhaps hungry, his wife and children waiting his return. He returns sometimes, having sold his work at cost price, and not cleared one shilling sixpence for the day's labour of himself and family. In the winter, by this means, the shopkeepers and warehouses can take the advantage of the chambermaster, buying the work at their own price. By this means, haberdashers' shops are supplied with boots, shoes and slippers. 
They can sell women's boots at one shilling ninepence per pair, shoes one shilling threepence per pair, children's sixpence, eightpence, and ninepence per pair, getting a good profit, having bought them of the poor chambermaster for almost nothing, and he glad to sell them at any price late at night, his children wanting bread, and he having walked about for hours, in vain trying to get a fair price for them. Thus women and children labour as well as husbands and fathers, and with their combined labours they only obtain a miserable living. The labour of the wife, and indeed the whole family, family work as it is called, is attended with the same evil to a trade, introducing a large supply of fresh hands to the labour market, and so tending to glut with workpeople each trade into which they are introduced, and thus to increase the casual labour, and decrease the earnings of the whole. The only means of escape from the inevitable poverty, I said in the same letters, which sooner or later overwhelms those in connection with the cheap shoe trade, seems to the workman to be by the employment of his whole family as soon as his children are able to be put to the trade, and yet this only increases the very depression that he seeks to avoid. I give the statement of such a man residing in the suburbs of London, and working with three girls to help him. I have known the business, he said, many years, but was not brought up to it. I took it up because my wife's father was in the trade, and taught me. I was a weaver originally, but it is a bad business, and I have been in this trade seventeen years. Then I had only my wife and myself able to work. At that time, my wife and I, by hard work, could earn one pound a week. On the same work, we could not now earn twelve shillings a week. As soon as the children grew old enough, the falling off in the wages compelled us to put them to work one by one, as soon as a child could make threads. One began to do that between eight and nine. I have had a large family, and with very hard work too. We have had to lie on straw oft enough. Now three daughters, my wife and myself, work together in chamber mastering. The whole of us may earn one week with another, twenty-eight shillings a week and out of that I have eight to support. Out of that twenty-eight shillings I have to pay for grindery and candles, which cost me one shilling a week the year through. I now make children's shoes for the wholesale houses, and anybody. About two years ago I travelled from Thomas Street, Bethnal Green, to Oxford Street, on the Hawk. I then positively had nothing in my inside, and in Holborn I had to lean against a house, through weakness from hunger. I was compelled, as I could sell nothing at that end of the town, to walk down to Whitechapel at ten at night. I went into a shop near Mile End Turnpike, and the same articles, children's patent leather shoes, that I received eight shilling a dozen for, from the wholesale houses, I was compelled to sell to a shopkeeper for six shilling sixpence. This is a very frequent case, very frequent, with persons circumstanced as I am, and so trade is injured and only some hard man gains by it. Here is the statement of a worker at fancy cabinet work on the same subject. The most on us has got large families. We put the children to work as soon as we can. My little girl began about six, but about eight or nine is the usual age. Oh, poor little things! said the wife, 
they are obliged to begin the very minute they can use their fingers at all. The most of the cabinet makers of the East End have from five to six in family, and they are generally all at work for them. The small masters mostly marry when they are turned of twenty. You see our trades coming to such a pass that unless a man has children to help him, he can't live at all. I've worked more than a month together, and the longest night's rest I've had has been an hour and a quarter. Aye, and I've been up three nights a week besides. I've had my children lying ill and been obliged to wait on them into the bargain. You see, we couldn't live if it wasn't for the labour of our children, though it makes them, poor little things, old people long afore they are growed up. Why, I stood at this bench, said the wife, with my child only ten years of age, from four o'clock on Friday morning till ten minutes past seven in the evening, without a bit to eat or drink. I never sat down a minute from the time I began till I finished my work, and then I went out to sell what I had done. I walked all the way from here, Shoreditch, down to the Lother Arcade, to get rid of the articles. Here she burst out in a violent flood of tears, saying, Oh, sir, it is hard to be obliged to labour from morning till night as we do, all of us, little ones and all, and yet not be able to live by it either. And you see, the worst of it is, this here children's labour is of such value now in our trade that there's more brought into the business every year, so that it's really for all the world like breeding slaves. Without my children, I don't know how we should be able to get along. There's that little thing, said the man, pointing to the girl ten years of age before alluded to, as she sat at the edge of the bed. Why, she works regularly every day from six in the morning till ten at night. She never goes to school. We can't spare her. There's schools enough about here for a penny a week, but we could not afford to keep her without working. If I'd ten more children, I should be obliged to employ them all the same way. And there's hundreds and thousands of children now slaving at this business. There's the M's. They have a family of eight, and the youngest to the oldest of all works at the bench. And the oldest ain't fourteen. I'm sure, of the 2,500 small masters in the cabinet line, you may safely say that 2,000 of them, at the very least, has from five to six in family, and that's upwards of 12,000 children that's been put to the trade since prices has come down. Twenty years ago, I don't think there was a child at work in our business, and I am sure there is not a small master now whose whole family doesn't assist him. But what I want to know is, What's to become of the 12,000 children when they're growed up and come regular into the trade? Here are all my young ones growing up without being taught anything but a business that I know they must starve at. In answer to my inquiry as to what dependence he had in case of sickness, Oh, bless you, he said, there's nothing but the parish for us. I did belong to a benefit society about four years ago, but I couldn't keep up my payments any longer. I was in the society above five and twenty year, and then was obliged to leave it after all. I don't know of one as belongs to any friendly society, and I don't think there is a man as can afford it in our trade now. They must all go to the workhouse when they're sick or old. The following is from a journeyman tailor concerning the employment of women in his trade. When I first began working at this branch, there were but very few females employed in it. A few white waistcoats were given out to them, under the idea that women would make them cleaner than men. 
and so indeed they can. But since the last five years, the sweaters have employed females upon cloth, silk, and satin waistcoats as well, and before that time, the idea of a woman making a cloth waistcoat would have been scouted. But since the increase of the puffing and the sweating system, masters and sweaters have sought everywhere for such hands as would do the work below the regular ones. Hence the wife has been made to compete with the husband, and the daughter with the wife. They all learn the waistcoat business, and must all get a living. If the man will not reduce the price of his labour to that of the female, why he must remain unemployed, and if the full-grown woman will not take the work at the same price as the young girl, why she must remain without any. The female hands, I can confidently state, have been sought out and introduced to the business by the sweaters, from a desire on their part continually to ferret out hands who will do the work cheaper than others. The effect that this continual reduction has had upon me is this. Before the year 1844, I could live comfortably and keep my wife and children, I had five in family, by my own labour. My wife then attended to her domestic and family duties, but since that time, owing to the reduction in prices, she has been compelled to resort to her needle, as well as myself, for her living. Note, on the table was a bundle of crepe and bombazine, ready to be made up into a dress. End note. I cannot afford now to let her remain idle, that is, if I wish to live, and keep my children out of the streets, and pay my way. My wife's earnings are upon an average eight shillings per week. She makes dresses. I never would teach her to make waistcoats, because I knew the introduction of female hands had been the ruin of my trade. With the labour of myself and wife, now I can only earn thirty-two shillings a week, and six years ago I could make my thirty-six shillings. If I had a daughter, I should be obliged to make her work as well, and then probably, with the labour of the three of us, we could make up, at the week's end, as much money as, up to 1844, I could get by my own single hands. My wife, since she took to dressmaking, has become sickly from over-exertion. Her work and her domestic and family duties altogether are too much for her. Last night I was up all night with her, and was compelled to call in a female to attend her as well. The over-exertion now necessary for us to maintain a decent appearance has so ruined her constitution that she is not the same woman as she was. In fact, ill as she is, she has been compelled to rise from her bed to finish a morning dress against time, and I myself have been obliged to give her a helping hand and turn to at women's work in the same manner as the women are turning to at men's work. The cause of the serious decrease in our trade, said another tailor to me, is the employment given to workmen at their own homes, or in other words, to the sweaters. The sweater is the greatest evil to us, as the sweating system increases the number of hands to an almost incredible extent, wives, sons, daughters, and extra women, all working long days, that is, labouring from 16 to 18 hours per day, and Sundays as well. I date the decrease in the wages of the workmen from the introduction of piecework and giving out garments to be made off the premises of the master, for the effect of this was that the workman making the garment, knowing that the master could not tell whom he got to do his work for him, employed women and children to help him, and paid them little or nothing for their labour. This was the beginning of the sweating system. 
the workmen gradually became transformed from journeymen into middlemen, living by the labour of others. Employers soon began to find that they could get garments made at a less sum than the regular price, and those tradesmen who were anxious to force their trade by underselling their more honourable neighbours readily availed themselves of this means of obtaining cheap labour. The consequence was that the sweater sought out where he could get the work done the cheapest, and so introduced a fresh stock of hands into the trade. Female labour, of course, could be had cheaper than male, and the sweater readily availed himself of the services of women on that account. Hence the males who had formerly been employed upon the garments were thrown out of work by the females, and obliged to remain unemployed, unless they would reduce the price of their work to that of the women. It cannot therefore be said that the reduction of prices originally arose from there having been more workmen than there was work for them to do. There was no superabundance of hands until female labour was generally introduced, and even if the workmen had increased 25% more than what they were 20 years back, still that extra number of hands would be required now to make the same number of garments, owing to the work put into each article being at least one-fourth more than formerly. So far from the trade being overstocked with male hands, if the work were confined to the men or the master's premises, there would not be sufficient hands to do the whole. According to the last census, 1841 GB, out of a population of 18,720,000, the proportions of the people occupied and unoccupied were as follows. Occupied, 7,800,000. Unoccupied, including women and children, 10,920,000. Of those who were occupied, the following were the proportions. Engaged in productive employments, note, I have here included those engaged in trade and commerce, and employers as well as the employed among the producers, end note. 5,350,000. Engaged in non-productive employments, 2,450,000. Of those who were engaged in productive employments, the proportion in round numbers ran as follows. Men, 3,785,000. Women, 660,000. Boys and girls, 905,000. Here, then, we find nearly one-fifth or 20% of our producers to be boys and girls, and upwards of 10% to be women. Such was the state of things in 1841. In order to judge of the possible and probable condition of the labour market of the country, if this introduction of women and children into the ranks of the labourers be persisted in, let us see what were the proportions of the 10,920,000 men, women and children who ten years ago still remained unoccupied among us. The ratio was as follows. Men, 275,000. Women, 3,570,000. Boys and girls, 7,075,000. Here, the unoccupied men are about 5% of the whole, the children nearly two-thirds, and the wives about one-third. Now it appears that out of, say, 19 million people, 8 million were, in 1841, occupied, and by far the greater number, 11 million, unoccupied. Who were the remaining 11 millions, and what were they doing? 
They, of course, consisted principally of the unemployed wives and children of the eight millions of people before specified, three millions and a half of the number being females of twenty years of age and upwards, and seven millions being children of both sexes under twenty. Of these children, four millions, according to the age abstract, were under ten years, so that we may fairly assume that at the time of taking the last census, there were very nearly seven millions of wives and children of a workable age still unoccupied. Let us suppose, then, that these seven millions of people are brought in competition with the five million producers. What is to be the consequence? If the labour market be overstocked at present with only five millions of people working for the support of nineteen millions, I speak according to the census of 1841, what would it be if another seven millions were to be dragged into it? And if wages are low now, and employment is precarious on account of this, what will not both work and pay sink to, when the number is again increased, and the people clamouring for employment are at least treble what they are at present? When the wife has been taught to compete for work with the husband, and son and daughter to undersell their own father, what will be the state of our labour market then? But the labour of wives and children and apprentices is not the only means of glutting a particular trade with hands. There is another system becoming every day more popular with our enterprising tradesmen, and this is the importation of foreign labourers. In the cheap tailoring, this is made a regular practice. Cheap labour is regularly imported not only from Ireland, the wives of sweaters making visits to the Emerald Isle for the express purpose, but small armies of working tailors, ready to receive the lowest pittance, are continually being shipped into this country. That this is no exaggeration, let the following statement prove. I am a native of Pest, having left Hungary about eight years ago. By the custom of the country, I was compelled to travel three years in foreign parts before I could settle in my native place. I went to Paris after travelling about in the different countries of Germany. I stayed in Paris about two years. My father's wish was that I should visit England, and I came to London in June 1847. I first worked for a West End show shop, not directly for them, but through the person who is their middleman, getting work done at what rates he could for the firm, and obtaining the prices they allowed for making the garments. I once worked four days and a half for him, finding my own trimmings and so on, for nine shillings. For this my employer would receive twelve shillings sixpence. He then employed one hundred and ninety hands. He has employed three hundred. Many of those so employed set their wives, children and others to work, some employing as many as five hands this way. The middleman keeps his carriage and will give fifty guineas for a horse. I became unable to work from a pain in my back, from long sitting at my occupation. The doctor told me not to sit much, and so, as a countryman of mine was doing the same, I employed hands, making the best I could of their labour. I have now four young women, all Irish girls, so employed. Last week one of them received four shillings, another four shillings tuppence, the other two five shillings each. They find their board and lodging, but I find them a place to work in, a small room, the rent of which I share with another tailor who works on his own account. There are not so many Jews come over from Hungary or Germany as from Poland. 
The law of travelling three years brings over many, but not more than it did. The revolutions have brought numbers this year and last. They are Jew tailors flying from Russian and Prussian Poland to avoid the conscription. I never knew any of these Jews go back again. There is a constant communication among the Jews, and when their friends in Poland and other places learn they are safe in England, and in work and out of trouble, they come over too. I worked as a journeyman in Pest, and got two shillings sixpence a week, my board and washing and lodging, for my labour. We lived well, everything being so cheap. The Jews come in the greatest number about Easter. They try to work their way here, most of them. Some save money here, but they never go back. If they leave England, it is to go to America. The labour market of a particular place, however, comes to be overstocked with hands, not only from the introduction of an inordinate number of apprentices and women and children into the trade, as well as the importation of workmen from abroad, but the same effect is produced by the migration of country labourers to towns. This, as I have before said, is specially the case in the printers and carpenters' trades, where the cheap provincial work is executed chiefly by apprentices, who, when their time is up, flock to the principal towns, in the hopes of getting better wages than can be obtained in the country, owing to the prevalence of the apprentice system of work in those parts. The London carpenters suffer greatly from what are called improvers, who come up to town to get perfected in their art, and work for little or no wages. The work of some of the large houses is executed mainly in this way. That of Mr. Myers was, for instance, against whom the men lately struck. But the unskilled labour of towns suffers far more than the skilled from the above cause. The employment of unskilled labourers in towns is being constantly rendered more casual by the migration from the country parts. The peasants, owing to the insufficiency of their wages and the wretchedness of their dwellings and diets, in Wilts, Somerset, Dorset and elsewhere, leave their native places without regret and swell the sum of unskilled labour in towns. This is shown by the increase of population far beyond the excess of births over deaths in those counties where there are large manufacturing or commercial towns, whilst in purely agricultural counties the increase of population does not keep pace with the excess of births. Thus in Lancashire, writes Mr Thornton in his work on overpopulation, the increase of the population in the ten years ending in 1841 was 330,210, and in Cheshire 60,919, whilst the excess of births was only 150,150 in the former, and 28,000 in the latter. In particular towns, the contrast is still more striking. In Liverpool and Bristol, the annual deaths actually exceed the births, so that these towns are only saved from depopulation, by their rural recruits. Yet the first increased the number of its inhabitants in ten years by more than one-third, and the other by more than one-sixth. In Manchester, the annual excess of births could only have added 19,390 to the population between 1831 and 1841. The actual increase was 68,375. The number of emigrants... Note, immigrants, end note, into Birmingham 
during the same period, may in the same way be estimated at 40,000, into Leeds at 8,000, into the metropolis at 130,000. On the other hand, in Dorset, Somerset and Devon, the actual addition to the population in the same decennial period was only 15,491, 31,802 and 39,253 respectively, although the excess of births over deaths in the same counties was about 20,000, 38,600 and 48,700. The unskilled labour market suffers again from the depression of almost any branch of skilled labour. For whatever branch of labour be depressed, and men so be deprived of a sufficiency of employment, one especial result ensues. The unskilled labour market is glutted. The skilled labourer, a tailor for instance, may be driven to work for the wretched pittance of an East End slop tailor, but he cannot turn his hand to any other description of skilled labour. He cannot say, I will make billiard tables, or bookcases, or boots, or razors, so that there is no resource for him but in unskilled labour. The Spitalfields weavers have often sought dock labour, the turners of the same locality, whose bobbins were once in great demand by the silk winders, and for the fringes of upholsterers, have done the same, and in this way the increase of casual labour increases the poverty of the poor, and so tends directly to the increase of pauperism. We have now seen what a vast number of surplus labourers may be produced by an extension of time, rate or mode of working, as well as by the increase of the hands, by other means than by the increase of the people themselves. If, however, we are increasing our workers at a greater rate than we are increasing the means of work, the excess of workmen must, of course, remain unemployed. But are we doing this? Let us test the matter on the surest data. In the first instance, let us estimate the increase of population, both according to the calculations of the late Mr. Rickman and the returns of the several censuses. The first census, I may observe, was taken in 1801 and has been regularly continued at intervals of ten years. The table first given refers to the population of England and Wales. Increase in the population of England and Wales. Note, the amount of the population from 1570 to 1750, as here given, is copied from Rickman's tables, as published by the Registrar-General. The population at the decennial term, as here given, is the amended calculation of the Registrar-General, as given in the new census tables. End note. 1570. Population England and Wales, 4,038,879. 1,600. Population, 4,811,718. Numerical increase, 772,839. Increase percent, 19. Annual increase percent, 0 0.6. 1630. Population 5,601,517. Numerical increase 789,799. Increase percent 16. Annual increase percent 0 0.5. 1670. 
population 5,773,646, numerical increase 172,129, increase percent 3, annual increase percent 0 0.08, 1,700, population 6,045,008, numerical increase 271,362, increase percent 5, annual increase percent 0 0.2, 1750, population 6,517,035, numerical increase 472,027, increase percent 8, annual increase percent 0 0.2, 1801, population 8,892,536, numerical increase 2,375,501, increase percent 37, annual increase percent 0 0.7. 1811, population 10,164,068, numerical increase 1,271,532, Increase percent, 14. Annual increase percent, 1.4. 1821. Population, 11,999,322. Numerical increase, 1,835,250. Increase percent, 18. Annual increase percent, 1.8. 1831. Population 13,896,797. Numerical increase 1,897,475. Increase percent 16. Annual increase percent 1.6. Population 15,914,148. Numerical increase 1,982,489. Increase percent 14, annual increase percent 1.4. 1851, population 17,922,768, numerical increase 1,968,341, increase percent 13, annual increase percent 1.3. Increase percent in 50 years from 1801 to 1851 equals 101. Annual average increase percent 1.41. Increase in the population of Scotland. 1755. Note from returns furnished by the clergy. Population Scotland 1,265,380. 1801. Note, the returns here cited are copied from those given by the Registrar-General in the new census. Population, 1,608,420. Numerical increase, 343,040. Increase percent, 27. Annual increase percent, 0 0.6. 1811, population, 1,805,864. Numerical increase 197,444. Increase percent 12. Annual increase percent 1.3. 1821. Population 2,091,512. Numerical increase 285,657. 
increase percent 16, annual increase percent 1.6. 1831, population 2,364,386, numerical increase 272,865, increase percent 13, annual increase percent 1.3. 1841, population 2,620,184, numerical increase 255,798, increase percent 11, annual increase percent 1.1. 1 .1. 1851, population 2,870,784, numerical increase 245,237, increase percent 10, annual increase percent 1.0 increase percent in 50 years from 1801 to 1851 equals 78 annual rate of increase percent 1.16 increase in the population of ireland 1731 returns obtained through an inquiry instituted by the irish house of lords Population Ireland, 2,010,221. 1754. Note. The population from 1754 to 1788 is estimated from the hearth money returns. End note. Population, 2,372,634. Numerical increase, 362,413. Increase percent, 19. 1767, population 2,544,276, numerical increase 171,642, increase percent 7. 1777, population 2,690,556, numerical increase 146,280, increase percent 6. 1785, population 2,845,932, numerical increase 155,376, increase percent 6. 1788, population 4,040,000, numerical increase 1,194,068, increase percent 42. 1805, Note, Newnham's Inquiry into the Population of Ireland. End note. Population, 5,395,456. Numerical increase, 1,355,456. Increase percent, 34. 1813. Estimate from incomplete census. Population, 5,937,858. Numerical increase, 542,402. Increase percent, 10. 1821. First complete census. Population, 6,801,827. Numerical increase, 863,969. Increase percent, 15. Annual rate of increase, 1.4. 1831. Population 7,767,401. Numerical increase 965,574. Increase percent 14. Annual rate of increase percent 
1841. Population 8,175,124. Numerical increase 407,723. Increase per cent 5. Annual rate of increase per cent 0 0.5. 1851, population 6,515,794, numerical decrease 1,659,330, decrease percent 20, annual rate of decrease percent 1.8. Total decrease in 30 years from 1821 to 1851 equals 4%. Annual rate of decrease for 30 years from 1821 to 1851, 0.1%. Increase in the population of the United Kingdom. 1821, population 20,892,670. 1831, population 24,028,584. Numerical increase 3,135,914. Decennial increase per cent, 15. Annual increase per cent, 1.4. 1841, population 26,709,456. Numerical increase, 2,680,872. Decennial increase per cent, 11. Annual increase per cent, 1.1. 1 .1. 1851, population 27,309,346, numerical increase 599,890, decennial increase percent 2, annual increase percent 0 0.2. Increase in 30 years from 1821 to 1851 equals 31%, annual rate of increase 0 0.9%. Discarding then all conjectural results and adhering solely to the returns of the censuses, we find that, according to the official numberings of the people throughout the kingdom, the increased rate of population is in round numbers 10% every 10 years, that is to say, where 100 persons were living in the United Kingdom in 1821, there are 130 living in the present year of 1851. The average increase in England and Wales for the last 50 years may however be said to be 1.5% per annum, the population having doubled itself during that period. How then does this rate of increase among the people, and consequently the labourers and artisans of the country, correspond with the rate of increase in the production of commodities, or in plain English, the means of employment? This is the main inquiry. The only means of determining the total amount of commodities produced, and consequently the quantity of work done in the country, is from official returns, submitted to the Parliament and the public as part of the revenue of the Kingdom. These afford a broad and accurate basis for the necessary statistics, and to get rid of any speculating or calculating on the subject, I will confine my notice to such commodities. Giving, however, further information bearing on the subject, but still derived from official sources, so that there may be no doubt on the matter. The facts in connection with this part of the subject are exhibited in the table given in the next page. The majority of the articles there specified supply the elements of trade and manufacture in furnishing the materials of our clothing, 
in all the appliances of decency, comfort, and luxury. The table relates, moreover, to our commerce with other countries, to the ships which find profitable employment, and give such employment to our people in the aggregate commerce of the nation. Under almost every head, it will be seen, the increase in the means of labour has been more extensive than has the increase in the number of labourers. In some instances, the difference is wide indeed. The annual rate of increase among the population has been 0.9%. From 1801 to 1841, the population of the kingdom at the outside cannot be said to have doubled itself. Yet the productions in cotton goods were not less than ten times greater in 1851 than in 1801. The increase in the use of wool from 1821 to 1851 was more than sixfold, that of the population, I may repeat, not twofold. In twenty years, 1831 to 1851, the hides were more than doubled in amount as a means of production. In 50 years, the population has not increased to the same amount. Can anyone then contend that the labouring population has extended itself at a greater rate than the means of labour, or that the vast mass of surplus labour throughout the country is owing to the working classes having increased more rapidly than the means of employing them? Thus, it is evident that the means of labour have increased at a more rapid pace than the labouring population. But the increase in property of the country, in that which is sometimes called the staple property, being the assured possessions of the class of proprietors or capitalists, as well as in the profits, prove that if the labourers of the country have been hungering for want of employment, at least the wealth of the nation has kept pace with the increase of the people, while the profits of trade have exceeded it. End of section 60